This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you uh, very much for the uh, opportunity to, uh, to speak here today. Uh, it's, it's a real pleasure to put together a talk on, on this subject um, you know, two of uh, the things that have occupied my attention uh, the, the past couple of months, figuring out how to target uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the enzymes, its genome encodes, and then how we think about uh, peer review and uh, the role of peer review and dissemination of our results. So I'd like to start just on a, you know, personal note of what, what we were up to in March. So my lab was uh, sort of really deep in studying problems like antibiotic resistance and evolution uh, with my colleague Ian Seipel uh, here. We, we just published this really great paper where we made all kinds of new molecules and studied them uh, in the context of bacterial ribosomes using uh, cryo-electron microscopy. And then we were doing more basic uh, things too, like studying how molecules like proteins respond to temperature and how they fluctuate between different conformations. And so on both of these videos, I'm showing you models of molecules inside of molecular envelopes that are the density maps that we build these models into that are the results of uh, X-ray crystallography or cryo-electron microscopy. So I, you know, I spend my days as a structural biologist trying to determine these structures, and I, I also spend some of my time uh, advocating for uh, accelerating scientific publication uh, as part of an organization that was founded uh, at UCSF by, by Ron Vale uh, called ASAP Bio, which really has a mission of advocacy around transforming the publishing landscape for, for uh, science. And then, of course, you know, March hit and, and really, you know, this is how I spent the next uh, couple of months. Uh, we have two young kids uh, and, and my wife who's also a scientist. Uh, and I, you know, spent uh, most of the, the next several months just basically uh, trying to keep things uh, intact uh, at, on the home front. Um, and right before uh, sort of I went into this mode, um, I, I was called together uh, with a group of colleagues, and this is actually the last time I saw most of my, my friends and colleagues in person. This picture was taken right at the end of February uh, and really spearheaded um, by, by my friend, Nan Krogan, who's also, also Canadian right here, who I think is wearing the second ugliest shirt in this picture. Uh, and Nevin called this group together and said, hey, you know, something is coming. Um, we all knew it was coming at the time. But uh, and he said, I think we have a chance if we work together uh, to do something uh, really uh, that can help advance the science of uh, coronavirus uh, biology and, and really help to understand uh, how this virus is hijacking. Uh, our our bodies, our immune systems. And that initial group of colleagues then grew to an even larger uh, group as, as shown here. Um, and, and really that, that QBI group that Nevin put together of UCSF uh, faculty, as I believe you've probably heard in, in this course previously, really was tasked with this question. How does a virus with only 14 genes take over a human cell? You know, the, the, the central technology that Nevin uh, and his group used to enter that question was a really simple biochemical technique where they expressed each of the proteins that the SARS genome encodes with a special handle, uh, an affinity tag, that then made it really easy to pull out that protein and all the human proteins it would interact with in a cell. We'd pull them out together and then run them on a machine called a, a mass spec that would identify the other proteins that were in that mixture. And so this was really successful in, for most of the, uh, most of the viral proteins uh, and resulted in a map of all these viral proteins, and, which, are the, which are shown you know, in, in red here, all these viral proteins. And then the edges surrounding them are all the human proteins that were enriched in this mass spectrometry 
uh, analysis. And so one of the early insights into the biology of this virus from this study was that, you know, it's got a very small number of proteins encoded by the virus, but it's interacting with a whole bunch of human proteins in order to hijack ourselves. Um, and so we did a whole bunch of controls and I'll just show you one of the ones that, that I was most involved in here. Even though these experiments were done in a cell line that was derived from a kidney, um, the proteins that the virus was hijacking were very enriched in proteins that were highly expressed in the lung. And this made a lot of sense with what we know uh, about SARS biology and how it would sort of be entering the body through the lung uh, tissue and hijacking those cells uh, as a first line of defense. What was really cool is that after we had this map, a bunch of colleagues led by Kayvon Shokat and Brian Shokat started overlaying what we knew about the pharmacology of these interacting proteins and identified many drugs and, and, and chemical tool compounds that could provide additional insight into how SARS-CoV-2 was, was hijacking host biology. And while this was going on, we were making the results public and the plasmids, the, the DNA that encodes all these proteins was being shared all around the world to over 300 labs in 38 different countries. Okay, so this work started getting a lot of attention because we weren't being quiet about what we were doing. We wanted to share the results. We wanted to get insight from other scientists. We wanted to see whether there was other data that we could overlay with it. And even before the, uh, the data were finalized, it already started being covered in the, in the popular press. So here, uh, an article from the New York Times by Carl Zimmer published uh, March 17th, started talking about how this map was identifying different small molecules and those small molecules were being sent to labs in Paris and in New York for testing in cell lines uh, that were able to be infected by SARS-CoV-2 because they were some of the only labs in the world that had that capability at the time. And then here's another article uh, when the map was really finalized. So you can see the, the number of drugs grew from 50 to 69 and in five days uh, as this map was, was being finalized. And so in the background of this, this is already, we've got press coverage in the New York Times. We've got us talking about it to our peers, to our friends before uh, we've even published uh, a preprint. And so on March 22nd, we uploaded at 8 p.m. Uh, a, a version of the, the article to a server called BioArchive um, that contained our initial results. And this, is, uh, an art, this article undergoes the scrutiny of, is this science or not? Does this seem like uh, you know, there's, there's any, uh, anything that would lead to it not being science? Uh, and if it passes that bar, it gets to, to basically go online. Uh, and then it began the normal peer review uh, process, which I note here, you know, so the, the nature of the journal that published it, you know, received it the next day after we posted the preprint. It was reviewed very rapidly, uh, accepted on April 22nd, and then published online a week later, and then ultimately, you know, published in a, in a print form uh, in July. So that gives you some insight into the sort of kinetics of, of this uh, peer review process. So, you know, we had, we had popular press coverage preceding this disclosure of the manuscript and then the peer review process. And, you know, a few things maybe changed during that, but by and large, uh, you know, the manuscript and the, and the underlying findings uh, didn't change in, in this case. So some of you may be asking, what is this preprint? What is BioArchive? Um, and so I'm going to play a, a video now. It's a, it's a couple minutes long that describes what a preprint is and what I think the transformational effect it's having on the communication of science. A scientist's job is to obtain knowledge about the natural world. Sharing that knowledge is critical for scientific progress as new information produced by one scientist can be used by others to make new discoveries and further benefit society. In 1665, 
the Royal Society of London created the first scientific journal called Philosophical Transactions to facilitate the transmission of new scientific findings. This publishing model established the concept of peer review to ensure scientific quality and the defined date of publication to establish priority of discovery. These principles have laid the foundation for the nearly 30,000 scientific journals that exist today. Let's see how the process works. First, scientists write a manuscript and send it to a journal for consideration. If the editors are interested, it is sent out to a group of anonymous scientists for their opinion of the quality of the work. The journal receives commentaries from the reviewers and decides whether to accept or reject the manuscript, or commonly requests revisions that require more experiments, resubmission, and re-review before the journal makes a final decision. This process works, but it takes time. It's not uncommon for studies to be published one year after initial submission. In addition, excellent work can be rejected on the basis of its perceived importance. Are there better ways biologists can share information? Biology may learn a thing or two from the physicists. In 1991, Paul Ginspar revolutionized communication among physicists by producing a preprint server called Archive that allows for rapid communication among scientists. Archive now posts more than 100,000 papers each year. Preprint servers in the life sciences exist, but they are not yet widely used. A preprint server is simple. A scientist uploads manuscript to a server, the paper is screened, to ensure its scientific nature. Within a few days, the manuscript is posted online and becomes visible to the entire scientific community before peer review. Subsequently, the manuscript is usually submitted to a traditional journal for peer review and publication. Most, but not all journals, will accept work previously posted on a preprint server. The immediate access of the preprint has many advantages. Preprint servers give the authors feedback from a larger group of people than the anonymous peer reviewers. Preprints can be an announcement of a discovery, which helps scientists establish priority of their work. With preprints, authors can share work in progress or recent accomplishments with funding agencies, promotion committees, or future employers. Preprints are open access. Anyone in the world with an internet connection can view the manuscript for free. Preprints accelerate scientific progress by speeding up access to new findings. The internet is continuing to redefine how people access information and create social networks. Using the internet, physicist Paul Ginsparg tried the first truly new experiment in scientific communication since the creation of the philosophical transactions 350 years ago. As our lives go digital, many new ideas and experiments in scientific communication will facilitate access to data, changing how scientific work is evaluated and discussed, and pushing scientific innovation at an ever-accelerating rate. Let's see what the next 10 years will bring. This video was produced by Eureka Science and is brought to you by ASAP Bio. Great. So... You know, if there was ever a time where we needed science to be accelerated, it, it's right now. Um, and so, you know, I was really happy that, that we posted a preprint of this, that we were sharing the materials uh, really openly and transparently. And a lot of people have been building on this work already. Uh, it's, it's already acquired, you know, almost a thousand uh, citations, as I mentioned, you know, more than 300 labs have requested the plasmids by the time uh, we even submitted the paper. That number is, is now, uh, you know, almost an order of magnitude higher. And, and the, the coverage, um, you know, continued as the paper uh, got uh, accepted with the, the message uh, largely uh, staying the same. Um, and, you know, I, I think we were, you know, appropriately cautious uh, in, in describing the potential impact of some of the small molecules that we implicated there. Uh, I think there was less caution by others uh, in our country about the benefits of other potential small molecules. And it's really raised a lot of questions about, you know, what peer review's job is, whether peer review is supposed to find major flaws or whether peer review truly authenticates its work. And, and uh, you know, one of my heroes of, of the pandemic, uh, Dr. Fauci, 
uh, you know, said, you know, you can peer review something that's a bad study. Uh, something can pass peer review and still be uh, flawed. And that's a really important lesson uh, that we try and impart on our, on our graduate students uh, very early on in, in their education at UCSF. But, you know, even scientists are concerned about the impact of preprints and early disclosure of data, especially during this pandemic. And one of the big concerns uh, amongst a survey that we did of scientists is the premature media coverage of preprints. And we saw that, uh, you know, maybe even more so this past week with the media coverage of the results from the DeepMind Google uh, protein folding uh, team, AlphaFold, and their results in the CAFS competition. That's not even media coverage of a preprint, that's media coverage of a single presentation. And so there's this interesting uh, relationship right now between preprints, uh, peer review, and popular press coverage. Uh, and, and to be honest, I don't know what the right solution is to that landscape. Uh, another example of ours is sort of the, the positive side of press coverage. Uh, there was also a study done by our colleagues to the South, as, as Jeff would put it, uh, at Stanford, on the seroprevalence, basically a, an estimate of how many people in Santa Clara County had been infected by uh, SARS-CoV-2. And this was picked up really uh, by the right-wing uh, media uh, as evidence that SARS-CoV-2 was not that deadly. Uh, and then used, you know, to be honest, to, to sort of shape policy uh, and, and has led to really disastrous outcomes. And that was based on, on a preprint. Very rapidly, there were comments on, the, on that preprint, uh, peer review that was going on transparently in real time that, that noted some of the flaws. So we really need to think about how to identify flawed research before it becomes dangerous. Um, there was a proposal by a good friend of mine, Mike Eisen, uh, and, and a colleague, uh, Robert Tibshirani, uh, that maybe for certain articles with extra public importance, there might be a service for rapid review and authentication of the sort of main punchlines. Um, but I think that there uh, is going to be a real problem here uh, with, with misinformation and and it, I don't think it's, it's caused by preprints. I think these things will occur in journals as well. Uh, but uh, as information uh, proceeds very rapidly, as we've seen during this uh, pandemic, it's going to be interesting to see how the press, the journal infrastructure, and scientists uh, operate uh, in the future. All right. So back to, back to the science that we were doing. So after we had this wonderful map of the viral proteins and the human proteins they interacted with. We got more uh, investigators and trainees together to start to approach it from the perspective of structural biology. And that's what we're really interested in. What do these proteins look like and how do they fit together? And so a team of many labs, including mine, I'm in, I'm in this picture uh, down here, uh, and many other colleagues, uh, got together along with many trainees, many more screens of Zoom after this. And we set up a consortium uh, led by Klim Verba, who's a, a, a fellow, and Oren Rosenberg, who's a clinician scientist and both structural biologists, to study the viral and host proteins in several different ways. And I'm going to go through quick vignettes of all of these different ways and how we think they might eventually teach us how to stop SARS. And I'm going to tell you about three ways we think about interrupting the biology of SARS, some of which I think you, you've heard of in this course before. Uh, and those are entry, how the virus gets into cells, uh, protein processing, once the virus starts making its own proteins, uh, how they get processed, and then signaling. Once those proteins are released, they start signaling and interrupting host pathways to allow the virus time to form again 
to spread to other cells. And so we're going to, I'm going to focus in on each of these three steps uh, and ways that we think we can use the power of structural biology and chemical biology to learn how to interrupt them. Okay, so the, the first uh, is entry. Uh, so SARS uh, has these spike proteins uh, on its surface and they bind to a receptor on human cells called ACE2. And there is a really simple idea, and this is in fact how many of the promising antibodies, uh, such as the Regeneron antibody cocktail that uh, President Trump took, uh, work. They block the spike protein and keep it from binding the ACE2 uh, receptor. And so we were really interested in visualizing how different antibodies and other proteins bound to the spike protein. And we used a technique called cryo-electron microscopy to do that. And so in cryo-electron microscopy, we purify the protein and we pipette a tiny amount of it onto one of these copper grids that looks like this. And the protein flows into very tiny holes inside those grids. So those grids then are coated with carbon. They have very small holes there. And then we wick away most of the, the mixture so that just a small amount of liquid is trapped in one of those holes. And it looks like this, where the proteins are then trapped in that thin layer of liquid. And then we plunge that entire grid into liquid ethane or liquid nitrogen uh, at very cold temperatures and it freezes very rapidly. And then we can fire an electron beam through that frozen sheet of protein and water to get images like what's shown here on the right, uh, which are called electron micrographs. And then we use computational techniques to stitch together those images to give rise to structural models like what's shown here. And that's just what my friend and colleague Ashish Manglik did you in, in the, within this consortium was he figured out ways to create little miniature nanobodies. These are antibodies derived uh, from camel species and then engineered in yeast so that they would bind to this spike protein. And he engineered many of these variants and they turn out to be super potent inhibitors of the SARS spike protein. And so UCSF was really excited about the potential of this. And you know, to continue with the theme of disclosure, UCSF released this wonderful uh, write-up on the work on August 11th that highlighted the fact that the consortium and Ashish and Peter Walter had posted this as a preprint on BioArchive. Um, and so that was August 11th. And then here you can see the eventual journal publication. So then over the next couple months, received for publication, peer review, and now we're talking a delay from uh, August to October. So still a very rapid uh, peer review and publication process, but now we've moved from the one month in the beginning of the pandemic to, to three months here. All right. So those, that's a biologic, that's a, a, a protein therapeutic. Um, but what we were sort of disappointed by collectively as scientists was that we had sort of no effective small molecule therapies to stop the spread of SARS-CoV-2 at the beginning of this outbreak. And small molecules would have many advantages over biologics. And in particular, if you can give people a, a pill, they can usually take that at home, whereas biologics usually have to be infused in a, in a hospital. And so I mentioned there are some other places to stop SARS. Well, one of the places where a small molecule might make a big impact is in this protein processing step. So after the virus has gotten into the cell and started making its own proteins, one of the proteins that it makes is a protease that chews up some of the SARS proteins into smaller proteins, and they need to be chewed up in order to be functional. And so this main protease here, the so-called uh, 3CL protease of SARS-CoV-2 is a really interesting therapeutic target because if you could stop it from processing those other proteins, you could bas you'd basically stop it from being able to replicate. And so there are many protease inhibitors uh, for other viruses and other human uh, proteases um, that have decent activity against SARS-CoV-2. This is one of them here. And so many people are really interested in either repurposing uh, small molecules against this protease or discovering new ones. Um, and one 
effort that we thought was particularly inspirational uh, was from a group at Oxford in, in the UK that attacked the main protease to try to design a completely new drug. And so they use a technique that I'm going to tell you more about called fragment screening, where you combine a whole bunch of small molecules uh, together. And, that, and they're also using other techniques of chemical biology and computational techniques to try to design new inhibitors against this uh, protease that would hopefully have better properties than some of the repurposed compounds that are currently being investigated uh, for inhibiting the protease. Okay, so what is a fragment and why did they bother starting from scratch? So if we take a small molecule like this one here, that's about the size of a normal FDA approved drug, you can see that it's actually made up of several different components that are stitched together chemically and they're highlighted in different colors here. And these different building blocks, if we were to imagine sort of cutting them apart, those are fragments. Those are the heterocycles, the chemical building blocks that are stitched together uh, to make a, a drug. So a drug is made of, of fragments. Why is that important? Well, if we think about the normal size of a drug, um, the number of compounds that have that size that just contain carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and, uh, and sulfur is huge. Uh, there's a, a gigantic number of compounds. It's 10 to the 63, uh, which, you know, to give you some perspective, um, you know, we have thousands of, of approved drugs. Uh, the number of drugs that have been investigated ever by humans in, in the literature is a couple order of magnitudes bigger than that. Um, you know, molecules that we think we can make is 10 to the 10, so in the billions. Uh, and then the number of possible molecules that, again, just contain reasonable chemical structures with just those four elements is in the order of 10 to the 60. So that's more than the number of stars in the universe or atoms in the solar system. So we're searching in drug discovery for needles in, in this just enormous haystack, right? It's, it's, it's not just like this, it's, it's really more like searching for an atom in the solar system for that one drug. So how do we think about finding that rare needle? Well, normally we could do something like screen a library of uh, molecules that are about drug-like size, um, but that's, you know, we're only able to do maybe a million uh, compounds in that way. Um, and so we can assay that by using robotics um, and hopefully we get some hit that turns into, you know, some kind of candidate. But we're, we have this huge disconnect because that chemical space, we've accessed about a million and there's actually 10 to the 60 molecules of that size. So the probability that, it, you know, that we're going to find the molecule with the right properties is very small. And that's one of the main reasons why drug discovery is so hard. But if we now shrink it down to 15 or 10 heavy atoms, there are fewer molecules that we can enumerate uh, of that size, and we can screen a reasonable proportion of chemical space uh, in that way. And at least that's the, that's the theory. Uh, so rather than us trying to find something that fits the entire binding site, as I've schematized here, We'll try different compounds as shown by different shapes and hope that some of them will bind weakly and that we can separate those that bind weakly from those that uh, don't bind at all. And then we can take that information about where they bind on the protein and start to link them together to form a more potent molecule. Okay, so what's one way to identify where they're binding? Well, I already told you about cryoelectron microscopy, another way to do it is protein crystallography where we coax the protein by dehydrating it in different solutions to form beautiful crystals like this that are uh, you know, about 100 microns, about a tenth of a millimeter uh, in size. And then we take it up to a particle accelerator called a synchrotron. This is our beam line at the Advanced Light Source in Berkeley. And then shine x-rays at it and rotate the crystal. And as we rotate the crystal, we get this beautiful pattern that's called a diffraction pattern that then we can mathematically convert into an image of what the protein looks like. Okay, so once we've done that, we've determined a structure. When we wanna soak fragments in, 
We'll do that over and over again. We'll do it 96 times in a tray that looks like this. And so in each of those wells, there'll be a, a, hopefully a single crystal. And then we'll take that tray, flip it upside down, and use a robot that uses sound waves to dispense small molecules into each of those wells. And then we'll use robotics up at the beam line to collect all of the, the data uh, for all of these uh, crystals so that we can visualize how, if or how those hundreds or thousands of molecules bind to the protein. Okay. And so they did this at, at Diamond in the UK on the protease very rapidly. They got started in, in February and they basically disclosed all of their data over the course of March and April. And they did it all completely openly uh, to try to catalyze the international community to help them think about how to design better protease inhibitors for SARS-CoV-2. And so again, uh, data was released in March, popular press coverage, or at least science popular press coverage uh, in early March. They didn't post a preprint uh, until June. And then the paper uh, ultimately was published uh, in October. So where are they now? They've kept building during the time that this paper was in review. They now have merged a couple of the fragments together uh, and they have something that's active in cells with an IC50, an inhibitory constant around one micromolar. That's about as, or about three micromolar, sorry. That's about as good as remdesivir, um, which, which is a so-so small molecule. So, and they still have a ways to go. And they're updating their work live on this website here, where they're, they're calling it the COVID moonshot. And then have posted a, a preprint describing their iterative effort to improve these molecules. All right. So the, the last vignette uh, I want to uh, talk about uh, today is how we can stop SARS from messing up host signaling. So after the proteins have been made, as the virus is trying to package its genome up in new virions, it's doing all kinds of things to shut down the host immune system. And one of the proteins that it's using is our hero or our antagonist, I guess, here, the macro domain, which one of the only things we know about is it binds this chemical here, which is called ADP ribose, uh, right in its active site right there. Okay, so in a very simplified version of uh, SARS immunology, uh, the, the virus uh, you know, enters the cell and the immune system starts to recognize that the virus is there and starts signaling. And the way it accomplishes a lot of that signaling is by adding on different modifications onto different proteins, which are shown uh, here. And one of those types of modifications is this ADP ribose or ADRP signal. And what the SARS macro domain does is it expresses this protein that starts to take those signals away. And so some of the inflammatory signals uh, or immune signals are suppressed and some of them go way up when this happens. And it's thought that this leads to some of the out of control immune signaling where you basically aren't controlling the virus, but you're getting this crazy inflammatory signal uh, is because of the mischievous action of this macro domain in messing up this type of, uh, of signaling. And so some evidence uh, from that is that when you take a mutation in this uh, gene in the SARS-1 virus, just that alone is sufficient to dramatically reduce virulence uh, in, in some models of infection, some uh, mouse models uh, of infection. And so the only thing that we know that really binds there is this chemical, this post-translational modification, this signal that's attached to other proteins. That's the only thing we know really about the chemistry of there. So we had no good starting points for inhibitors. Um, but fortunately, uh, this type of signaling is super important in another context. It's super important in breast and ovarian cancer because it's also a signal that the body uses when there are uh, 
breaks and, and damage to, uh, to DNA. And so one of the enzymes that puts on these signals is called PARP. And there are PARP inhibitors now that are very important in certain BRCA uh, mutant cancer treatments. And this is the first approved uh, PARP inhibitor, but there are now several. And one of the world's experts in PARP biology and PARP inhibitors is the cancer center director, Alan Ashworth at UCSF. And so when we realized that the signaling the virus was doing was related to the signaling that Alan was studying in the context of cancer, we got really excited about studying this macrodomain. And so, as I mentioned, we have no effective small molecule therapies to stop the spread of SARS-CoV-2. And we think that the macrodomain would be a great target for doing that. Uh, but we have no validated small molecule inhibitors, and in fact, no validated small molecule binders of macrodomain. So rather than the, the protease, where I think there was a lot of chemical material here, we're really just starting from scratch. And that fragment approach could really be useful for providing starting points. And so this consortium that Klim and Oren were heading up that was so valuable uh, in the uh, nano, uh, nanobody work got to work on trying to crystallize this protein. And we form beautiful crystals very rapidly, uh, spearheaded by, by these folks uh, down here. And we collected amazing data. And so this was in the middle of the shelter in place period. Uh, and this is just some of the most spectacular data uh, that I've ever seen. And I'll, I'll just point your attention over here. So uh, the data are so precise and high resolution. Everybody knows Water is H2O. Well, here you can actually see the electron clouds for the O, and then these little green bits here are the, are the hydrogens. So it's so precise that you can literally see H2O in, in the data. It's, it's really remarkable data, some of the best data we've ever, ever collected. And so we got to work uh, and started collaborating with our friends uh, at, at Oxford, uh, Ivan Ahal and, and Frank Von Delft, who we'd collaborated previously on fragment uh, screen work. We employed both of the particle accelerators in the Bay Area, the Advanced Light Source at Lawrence Berkeley Lab and SSRL at, uh, at Stanford, at, at SLAC. And this was a huge team effort, but I'm just gonna single out Galen Corey, a postdoc uh, who works in my group who just worked tirelessly on this. So we, we weren't actually flying back and forth uh, to the UK, but we were Zooming uh, all hours of the day, coordinating uh, our work. And Marion and, and Galen had a really fantastic collaboration. And so here's our, our synchrotron that we use uh, at the Advanced Light Source at Berkeley. And then there is the Mission Bay campus of, of UCSF. So we collected almost a thousand data sets uh, from this effort uh, using the techniques that I, I showed you before, uh, where we move using sound waves, chemicals into each of these crystals. Um, and, and by we, I really mean Galen here. Uh, and, and the team worked so hard around the clock to get this done. This is a, a message uh, that Galen sent me, a summary of his data processing uh, some point in, in July. Uh, highlighting some of his latest results. And you can see the time here, it's four o'clock in the morning. Uh, just, you know, remarkable energy from, from all the participants here. And so we were really excited because we found over 200 molecules that bound to this protein. Um, we were really kind of surprised where they bound. Um, they bound mostly uh, in this region that's coming over here, which I'll call sort of north to south. And they didn't bind very much east to west. And we were expecting them to bind sort of in that orientation because that was the only chemical knowledge that we had going into this that would bind looking a lot like this ADP ribose. Okay, so remember we have this sort of huge chemical space. And even though fragment screening is, an, is a pretty efficient way to cover that chemical space, there's still an undersampling. And so one way to fight against that is to use computation rather than experiments. So we teamed up with Brian Schoika here at UCSF and his postdoc, Stefan Gabauer, and they do a technique called docking. 
essentially what they're doing is they're taking a binding site on the protein and using the computer to vary the molecules that are in there and calculate the energies. And they, we were able to screen, as I said, about a thousand molecules crystallographically. They can screen 19 million using docking. And after a bunch of filters, they purchased about 60 of them. Um, and the coolest part about that is that some of these 60 molecules, as far as we know, had never been made before by any human. Uh, so they were really being used for the first time in our study. And that's made possible by some breakthroughs in chemical synthesis from this company, Enamine, which is based in the Ukraine. So we got data back on those 60 compounds and 20 of them hit one-third, which is a remarkable success uh, for docking, to have a one-third confirmation of your predictions. And those predictions were very close uh, to uh, the actual experimental structures in most cases. So I'm showing the predictions for many of them here in blue, and then the resulting crystal structures in, uh, in yellow, and you can see they're mostly very close. This is probably the worst one here where it's sort of translated and flipped around. But by and large, the docking was right and it was right for the right reasons. One of the coolest things that we discovered in this is, as I mentioned, some of these molecules were being made for the first time ever. Well, even the company that does the chemical synthesis uh, wasn't being very careful and they sent us uh, the wrong compound. Uh, They sent us a compound probably because of a mistake in their synthesis, not because of a mistake in the handling. Um, And we were able to tell from the data, which is this blue and green mesh here, we thought we were supposed to get this molecule, but what they actually made was this molecule over here. And we could tell that because the data quality uh, were so high. And so this is a really cool sort of result for us from a a technical uh, point of view. So now that we have all these molecules laid out over the active site, we got to start to think about ways to connect them together to make a more potent inhibitor. And we've written, uh, or our colleagues in the UK have written a a program called Fragmentstein, which takes the parts from different molecules and tries to stitch them together. I'll just show you a little movie of how that works here. So we're zooming into the active site of the protein, getting rid of that substrate that we know a lot about, showing you one of our fragments here, and then another one of the fragments, and then a hypothetical molecule that could link the two. And this molecule is purchasable from that company that's able to make on demand all these things. It's never been made before, but we would predict that this is a potent uh, or a more potent inhibitor than either of the parent molecules. Uh, And so we've ordered those uh, and they're due here in the next couple of weeks. We've already gotten some of them, Uh, and validated that they are more potent inhibitors. And one of the cool things that they do is they cause the protein to shift into a more open shape, a more open conformation. And that more open shape gives us additional opportunities to take the computer uh, computational approaches that Brian's lab specializes in uh, and try to match to the new shape of this pocket to try to find more potent inhibitors. All right. So While the publication process for this is going, we're getting advice because we posted our data openly from all over the world. We disclosed the data uh, in July, really just days after uh, after finishing collecting it, posted all the data online, and so did our friends in the UK. We just posted uh, our preprint right around Thanksgiving, and we've been ordering all kinds of new molecules based on these ideas to test and bring into the next set of structural biology um, and uh, and computational studies that we're doing on this very cool protein. Okay, so what I told you about with the idea to interrupt signaling here is we think this is this great target that before we started this study, we didn't know if it could be targeted with small molecules. Um, And now we're pretty optimistic. We have lots of starting points from this fragment screening campaign that are very chemically diverse. And we've shown that this computational technique docking can work on this target. Um, And so we're starting to link and merge these things together. And we're optimistic that we can eventually develop a strong inhibitor, not in time for the SARS-CoV-2 COVID pandemic, but these uh, macro domains are 
widely found across many different viruses. And we think that we can develop a molecule that has a broad spectrum activity that will hopefully uh, be able to work across many different types of viruses. Okay, so what's next? Well, this platform from the, the QCRG has been doing a lot of other things. Uh, I'll bring it back to that protein map that uh, Nevin's lab produced as part of this consortium effort. One of the interactions was between this human protein, TOM70, and this viral protein, ORF9B, here. And we've now visualized what that interaction looks like using CryoEM. And it was a big surprise because this protein, the viral protein, shapeshifts. So you can see here on the right is what it looks like when it's on its own. And then when it's bound to this human protein, it undergoes this remarkable structural rearrangement to fit into that hole in the human protein. So one of the things we'd like to do is find a way to target small molecules to bind at this hole right here to prevent this interaction between ORF9B uh, and TOM70. And that just gives you a flavor of, you know, how much more is coming down uh, the pipe from this uh, huge effort uh, here at UCSF. Okay. So, you know, one of the big lessons of all of this is that the way we're disclosing data is changing. Uh, and a lot of the incentive structures in science and, and academia uh, are not well suited to the quality science that needs to be produced, especially in pandemic circumstances. And you saw this was a huge team effort uh, and we need ways to acknowledge that, uh, to acknowledge uh, and encourage uh, open dissemination of data and code earlier. Um, and, and open data is also important uh, as we start to evaluate uh, vaccines. And here's a, a really interesting uh, a series of tweets from, from an epidemiologist who's saying she doesn't object to science by press release, but that press release needs to have data along with it so that the experts can, can dig into it uh, as well. And so with that, um, I will thank you uh, for your attention uh, tonight. Hopefully people are, are still on. Uh, thank the folks who, who did this work. As I mentioned, the QBI, QCRG, Structural Biology, uh, consortium was huge in this. That's led by Clem and Oren, and then Natalia and I, uh, Natalia Jura and I have been leading the crystallography effort. There's just so many wonderful trainees involved in that. And then especially the folks from my lab who did a lot of the uh, heavy lifting, uh, Iris on, on the, a lot of the data processing, Robbie on a lot of the functional uh, work, and then Galen, uh, who with Marion at Oxford uh, really just did heroic work on, on the crystallography. Uh, and with that, I will uh, end uh, the, my sharing and uh, be happy to take any questions. Thanks very much, James. Uh, that was a great insight into uh, your work and also um, into the challenges of uh, keeping communication among researchers going and the limitations of publications. So take home point for the general public. What is it? How does it affect, uh, you know, how does it affect our families? What's this mean to, you know, the general member of public and what, what uh, learning points can they take about, you know, progress in COVID-19 from this? Yes. So I, I think one of the main lessons is uh, that we're going to be much better prepared the next time. Uh, and we're going to be much better prepared as, as scientists because of the open culture that has emerged around this. Uh, and I think that I, I really take that to heart because I grew up in, in Toronto, which experienced the first SARS uh, outbreak, uh, you know, almost 20 years ago. Uh, and, you know, it was a much smaller uh, outbreak. Uh, but you know, we kind of took our foot off the gas as a, a scientific community. Uh, after that, there was initially a big flurry of, of interest in coronaviruses, but we kind of took our foot off the gas. I, I don't think that's going to happen this time. Uh, and, and in that 20 years, the, 
data sharing practices and the disclosure practices have just gotten so much healthier. And I think they still have a long way to go. Uh, but I think that's, that's going to be a, a big part of what helps us uh, be prepared for the next, uh, you know, COVID 2029 or, you know, hopefully much later, um, because we don't have those off the shelf uh, small molecules that can be widely deployed. Uh, and, and I'm optimistic that out of this, we're going to get stuff um, that, that will make an impact. Uh, in future outbreaks and and keep them from becoming uh, pandemics. Do you think that um, this uh, new approach to publishing with preprints has been a major advance for the scientists, but perhaps um, muddying for the general public? Because as you said, you can pick and choose anything from these things. and, uh, you know, in, in addition to what's been going on with fake news and things like that, it's sort of like riskier for the general public, would you say? I don't. I, because I think that everything that sort of wants to be published will be published. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's very uh, obvious when there is actually a legitimate, huge uh, scientific story that it will get picked up uh, no matter where it's published or even before it's published, as we saw with this breakthrough in uh, protein structure prediction. You know, that's just getting coverage everywhere, uh, despite the fact it hasn't even been published yet. But then the I'll put the, the blame on scientists who are sort of hyping results before they're really fully baked, whether they're in peer-reviewed journals or just preprints or just by press release. I think we need to be much more cautious about our interactions with the public and with the, with journalists. Uh, and I don't know that peer review uh, necessarily is the guarantor of that yeah. as much as restraint uh, and, and using each time you want to talk about your science as a, as a chance to sort of educate both about the promise, but also the limitations. Uh, of your work. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm obviously like a, a preprint, you know, ev- evangelist. Uh, and so there are other folks that would say it is polluting the literature. There's no hierarchy, all of these types of things. So I'll acknowledge those types of limitations, but by and large, you know, most harm uh, that I think I can think of uh, in the past 20 years from misrepresentation of science has come from the peer peer reviewed literature. Right, right. In, in, in a way, it may be that what's harmed science more is sort of the Silicon Valley pitch, where you pitch this great product that you don't yet have to get the investors. So and it seems like science has adopted that a little bit. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we often joke that sort of a lot of funding is more on a reimbursement model than a pitch model. <laughs> like you almost yeah. have to have the project done. Uh, so, so there's an interesting uh, sort of valley there uh, to, to cross between hype and, and reimbursement. I, I, I do think it's important for scientists to get uh, the public excited about the potential uh, for their work. Uh, it's just not everything is going to have a, you know, disruptive impact within the next six months. And as we've seen, I mean, we're, you know, what, nine months into, into, uh, this, this pandemic and, you know, we don't, we haven't had that disruptive, uh, solution yet. Uh, the vaccines look great, but that even that is built on, you know, really decades uh, of work. Uh, even the, the, more experimental mRNA vaccines. So uh, I think we, we have a big responsibility to be uh, educators much more than, than hype, uh, hype people. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, one of our uh, audience, Rosemary, asks, um, how, how can we access uh, preprint materials and studies? Like what websites do you go to? Yeah, so the the main ones uh, for the life sciences uh, are BioArchive and MedArchive. Uh, and BioArchive 
uh, has sort of the life science, basic science, discovery science domain. And MedArchive has a little bit of extra scrutiny for uh, patient disclosures. And uh, they, that's where uh, preprints about clinical trials or things involving patients would go. Um, and so you can think of, uh, you know, those two as, as your main gateways in. But you know, they're now uh, indexed on Google Scholar and uh, PubMed is also experimenting with indexing all SARS CoV-2 uh, um, preprints uh, in, in as well. So, uh, but BioArchive and MedArchive would be the, the two main ones. Great, thank you. Um, let's see, uh, Spencer in our audience asks, a lot of the huge advancements made by your team and collaborators in finding small molecules to help stop release of SARS-CoV-2 virions were enabled by the more free and free-flowing sharing of info. Uh, another barrier to research discoveries is money. I'm thinking of paywalls to academic journals that stop less well-funded labs from gaining access to information. Also of how academics keep their jobs by making discoveries in private and not getting scooped by labs that make discoveries first. Um, really, I think th this story that you just told is the like the best story I've heard about not siloing. It's just it's yeah. really amazing. But can you comment on how financial incentives are not aligned with sort of pure research, scientific discover discovery, equity, and collaboration? Yeah. So um, you know, Spencer, I, I think the equity point is is super important here, and and it extends not just to. Um, you know, less well-funded labs or, or countries uh, or scientists in other countries, but also to the public. One of the great things about all the work on BioArchive or MedArchive is, you know, everyone can read it. Uh, it's completely open access from the minute it goes on there. Uh, and so, you know, there's no paywalls for anybody. I think that is so important. I think we have a, you know, a, a moral responsibility uh, to accelerate science in that way uh, so that, that folks in, in different countries and, and folks who, who don't have access to the resources that we have at UCSF um, can, can be a part of scientific discovery. The other uh, you know, aspect of scooping and, and incentives one of the other great things, uh, and this is the thing that most attracted me to preprints in the beginning, is when I, if I have a big discovery in my lab and I submit it to a journal and it goes behind the cloak of peer review for months, uh, I don't control when it's disclosed. And I am, you know, in that time subject mm. to potential scooping. Mm. When I post a preprint, I control when I disclose the data. And I can decide whether I want to be, you know, whether I'm rushing to beat somebody and try and scoop them, or I can do it in response to them scooping me. But now we're talking about scooping maybe on the matter of days or weeks. And, and we're not in the timescale of months where it's really ambiguous who had what first, who did what when, you know, if, 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 if Jeff publishes or posts a preprint that's basically identical to something I'm about to post and I post it 24 hours later. Yeah, sure, maybe I posted it 24 hours later instead of a week later, but it's very clear we had the results at the same you know, general time. So I think this openness and transparency and scientist control is just such a huge part of uh, moving science to uh, a much more healthy culture where we control uh, sort of what what's going on and, and we can eliminate a lot of the non-transparent uh, aspects of the competitive nature of science that I think is so uh, antithetical to the real reasons we got into doing this. I have to say the more we probe and discuss this, the more sense it makes actually yeah. it's really yeah well I look like i mean the, the old system as that video pointed out was invented in the 17th century and we've basically been operating on that system uh for you know almost 400 years despite the fact that we now have the internet <laughs> you know the, despite, <laughs> somehow we've invented email and pdfs and all these things and peer review has gotten slower and more painful than when it was done by carrier pigeons so sure. you know the, right. Hey, if it was good enough for my grandfather. You know. mm -hmm. 
Um, so Corey asks us, can you talk about the open culture as it relates to or perhaps threatens the traditional pharmaceutical for profit industry structure? Will research dollars flow differently in this new paradigm? You know who are gigantic fans of preprints and, uh, and open science? Pharma and biotech, because they, they hate the idea that there are these incentives that academics have to publish in certain journals and massage data so that it gets by peer review in certain ways. Uh, and they're very big fans of open data, more potentially more reliable data. That data can come out faster so that they can build on it faster. So, um, you know, I don't know that it's going to change, uh, you know, the, the flow of, of dollars between there because hopefully we're going to move the entire system towards something where people are disclosing stuff much more rapidly. Uh, but I think the incentives for doing that are very in line with, uh, you know, the motivations of these companies to create new medicines faster for people based on more reliable input data. Mm. Um, uh, uh, audience members asks, are we way past the era, era of worrying about unintended consequences or side effects of synthetically created molecules. And I love the fact that you can just like uh, request your molecule and have it sent to you. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's so cool. Uh, yeah. you know, for, but it's for a my... great question. Are, are we past yeah, the era, so era of worrying about that? <laughs> I, I don't think we're worried about it from sort of an environmental point of view. Um, you know, these are generally... Uh, sort of, you know, we're not using any exotic elements or any exotic chemistries, just with very simple building blocks, you're, um, you're able to create such enormous chemical space that we couldn't hope to uh, cover it. We are, of course, worried about, you know, side effects of any small molecules that we create to target SARS-CoV-2 proteins. And in fact, you know, this COVID moonshot for the protease, uh, you know, that's where they're going to spend most of their time and most of their money. Uh, in the next little while. They're, they're going to get to a decent efficacy in cell lines and uh, in vitro studies really soon. And then the real slog of drug development uh, comes along and it's, you know, all about, you know, absorption, distribution, toxicity, uh, all of these sort of other properties that are uh, so painful to engineer around and, and side effects uh, of course, are, are, you know, a big one, uh, especially for a protease inhibitor. There's so many human proteases uh, that, that could be off targets. Uh, similarly with the, the macro domain, there are lots of human proteins that bind uh, AD, ADPR uh, and, um, and, and that, uh, you know, means that a molecule that binds in that pocket might bind some of those. And so we're going to try and get out in front of it and, and sort of look at the specificity of it. But it's uh, the unintended consequences uh, are, are something that you're, you're on the lookout for. But unfortunately, you know, we don't have great tools for predicting those until the rubber meets the road and you're actually putting it into animals uh, or, or very sophisticated cell models. Seems like that might be more pertinent to when we start ordering synthetic organisms. So you put in your order for an organism to this company in England, they send you the organism, then we might have to be worried, but probably not these molecules. Yeah. Yeah. So I agree. Well, that was great. Any, any last minute insights uh, for the audience? Uh, really appreciate you going through that with us. It was Eye-opening for me. I hadn't really thought about the implications of this new publishing process. Um, let's see. Do you expect the new administration's approach to COVID to impact you and your lab's daily working experience? It's a great question, uh, and you know, like like many, I'm I'm very uh, optimistic. Uh, you know that that the new administration will bring uh, more. Uh, serious and, you know, approach to dealing with the pandemic. Um, you know, obviously the health consequences for the people who are suffering are huge. And, uh, and that's where, you know, the main thing is at the top of everybody's minds. And 
you know, we've had folks in our lab, we've had family members uh, affected by this. Uh, fortunately, no one in the lab uh, affected by it themselves. Um, but, you know, from a very selfish point of view, you know, we're working at 50% density uh, in the lab. That means we're not getting as much science done as we like to. And the faster we can get stuff under control, uh, vaccines distributed, better, uh, more available testing for asymptomatic uh, people uh, all around, then, you know, hopefully we can, we can increase that number and, and, you know, increase the, the rate at which the, the science goes. But, uh, you know, the, the lab's daily working experience, uh, you know, is we're, we're, you know, we're so lucky, uh, you know, to be at UCSF, great place. Uh, that's had a really great institutional response to COVID that's kept our labs open, that's kept people's jobs, uh, you know, safe. And, and the impact on us has been minimal, uh, but that doesn't mean that we're not looking forward to it getting better. We, we got to get you back into that lab, get the whole, whole lab working. As we I, need I'm to actually in my office today because my, you know, I, I tend to talk too loudly for my kids when I'm, uh, you know, uh, giving a seminar like this. So uh, I made a very rare trip into UCSF, into my office. I haven't actually sort of been in here in, in <laughs> you know, weeks to, to months. So it's, it's, wow. a, it's nice to nice to be back. Wow, we appreciate that. And uh, yeah, thank your family for releasing you tonight. <laughs> so, all right, well, take care. Everybody out there, stay safe. And uh, we will see you back next week. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.